1: Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Podside. This is Pete, and as usual, I'm joined with Carlo. How are you, Carlo? I'm doing all right. Excellent. And uh, we are joined today by Kevin Andrew Murphy. Who? Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about what he worked on, but it includes uh, the Wild Card series. There's a short story out in World War Three called Anastasia's Egg, and actually, uh, we talked about him last week. <laughs> How are you, Kevin?
0: Oh, pretty good. All things considered, especially considering the day. <laughs>
1: Yes. um, I I have a confession to make. Uh, For this episode, I have a glass of rum and a bag of Hostess donuts in front of me, and I may end up dunking them. It's a stressful day.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I've actually got a a bottle of uh, Captain Morgan's Halloween rum left over here, and I've got half a Coke. It may become a rum and Coke very
1: quickly. (laughs) Okay. You're very welcome to on the show absolutely <laughs> and yes. we end up saying this on just about every episode but let me upfront it with you profanity is fine
0: <laughs> excellent of course I, uh, that's the n- not profanity but i i tend to pepper in profanity um as needed per the character or my own feelings
1: perfect Okay, so, Kevin, we first encountered your work. Well, I was going to say it was House of, House of Secrets with an earlier episode, but that's not true, is it? Carlo, we covered something of Kevin's earlier, didn't we?
2: Yeah, we uh, we talked a little bit about what had shown up in the uh, mage uh, storyteller game uh, anthology called Truth Until Paradox, and I believe, uh, Kevin, you had co-written these as well with uh, James A. Moore, the um, the Penny Dreadful story, uh, Silver Nutmeg, Golden Pair, and Grim Reminders.
0: And finding out what, which part is it, which is no. Penny's viewpoint is all written by me. Grimm's viewpoint is all written by uh, Jim. And so most of Silver Nutmeg, Golden Pair is mine, except for the Grim interlude. And then vice versa with grim reminders.
2: Oh, interesting! Uh, I was gonna, I, I was gonna wonder about that, but thanks for offering that up front.
1: <laughs> so, w- one of the things that we, uh, I feel sort of bad because the the episode we were covering was. Uh, we, we try we try and divide up and explore science fiction. We're finding a lot of things are shoved as far away from literature as possible, and that's sort of the ground where we've where we've been reading recently, which is RPG books, and that seems to be like a really rich area of your work. You seem seem to be working very closely with that. Like even even the Wild Cards was originally based on a superheroes game. So I. I I guess my dumb question that I'm taking a long time to get to is, how did you get started in writing? Was it related to RPGs? Um, well,
0: pretty much I've always been writing. I, you know, started out writing a novel in high school that quickly turned into a trilogy. And while I haven't published it, it was it was called a formula for Chaos. I have published stories set in that world and always mean to go back to it. But that I was also doing role playing games at the same time. and, managed to get myself the gig to write the second Wild Cards game book for George R. R. Martin. And then he invited me into the entire Wild Cards consortium. And I was bench warming for, you know, a couple of books. But then I got a chance to write uh, my character Cameo and Will-O-Wisp in uh, Card Sharks. And that was like my first professional sale. I I had a few with semi-pro zines before then, but I pretty much was, you know, selling things around different places all at the same time, you know, rattling every door and seeing which one opened. Now, as you were mentioning with, with literature, I tend to have a lot more literary bent than most people would think with an RPG writer. But, you know, I was a graduate student in, you know, professional writing at USC, and I have read all of my Folklore and literature, so it's like going. Hmm. Virginia Woolf did this. I'll do it too. Okay, this works. That's pretty much my my rule of writing.
1: Well, that makes sense, and actually, that that's a good tie into one of the uh, things we're talking about today, which is Anastasia's egg. Um, there's a lot of rich. I don't know what you call it, mythic fodder here. Um, could Could you talk about? Uh, where this story came from? Because I, I was pretty fascinated by it.
0: Well, the story there, um, the editor uh, Sean, Sean Patrick Hazlitt, we'd uh, made uh, friends at the uh, World Science Fiction Convention in Kansas City, and we were talking, and he basically had his War- Weird War Three anthology, and I had actually previously written a Weird War One story uh, for Wendigo Tales, which was called No Man's Land. And that was, you know, dealing with, you know, Victorian spiritualism and, you know, German occultism and all of the rest of the stuff, plus photographing fairies and World War I at the same time. And so I I knew all of that stuff. This one, I I decided Anastasia's Egg is actually much more comedic, um, but I'm doing a Cold War story, but I'm doing it with the characters. From Russian mythology, and it—I'll—I'll I'll spoil very slightly in that you—it—it it comes up very quickly that we've got Vasilisa the Wise the, slash the Beautiful, who is there suddenly having a Cold War meeting with Koschei the Deathless, and really, it's their old horrible relationship that goes back centuries, um, mixed in with the Cold War, and all sorts of magic and last, uh, lost uh, lost items and treasures, and, of course, Anastasia's egg, which is a Fabergé egg.
2: I wanted to point out, because I, when I read this, I was remembering back to Silver Nutmeg, Golden Pear, and you have sort of a similar – I don't remember it being a Fabergé egg, but it's definitely a, an egg-like – uh, artifact is this something that you like a uh, one of these like like tiny things that you like to uh, Easter eggs if you will that you like to insert into your stories?
0: Oh, <laughs> Easter eggs! Yeah, that's actually silver Net Make golden pear. It's uh, the golden pear of Botker the alchemist, um, who's you know the guy who founded the mice and porcelain factory. But yeah, I I love going into all of these little weird tidbits of history and alchemy. I mean, I ended up in high school, I did a, you know, speech and debate tournament thing on alchemy, and I researched it so damned much that later on, I was called in by Hollywood to consult on the ancient mysteries of, um, of alchemy for the ancient mysteries program. So it's like, I, I know a ton of alchemy. And it really goes through all of Western hermeticism. And magic and jewelry making and lost jewels and everything so it's all just linked in together and you fall down that rabbit hole and you find lots of fun stuff to use in all the stories
2: lots of connections
1: i'm seeing Mm -hmm. yeah well i one of the things i'm really fascinated with is uh shared world writing because i i was when i was younger i used to collect all the thieves world books and the war world books why are they all labeled war but uh are labeled world but the uh the wild cards really drew me in and i think one of the reasons was uh how do i put this i'm obsessed with walter john williams and so that was probably my entry so um i mean you've talked a little bit about how you got involved in the whole project um What's what's your experience with shared universes? Does that does that create opportunities or limit you? How do you feel about it? And and how does that writing process work? Um, shared
0: world universes they work very differently. But part of the reason why Wild Cards has been working so well and so long is that George um, made certain to recruit a bunch of writers who like to work well. Uh, together, and so it's a case where you know we borrow each other's characters, and and honestly, they were going over the problems that Thieves World had set up. Is that Thieves World had the bits where the rules where you could do anything you wanted you know, with anybody else's character without their approval, so long as you didn't kill them. So there were a whole lot of people who are having their characters, you know, with their arms and legs cut off, blind in an alleyway at the <laughs> end of the story. I like Tempest. Yes. Yeah. Like, well, um, you know, that uh, that's kind of a problem. But it, with Wild Cards, George came up with the master agree- agreement where- If my character is used in a major way in somebody else's story um, and a major way means something like, you know, they get married, they get shot, they get horribly traumatized, you know, not just they walk on delivered a line and went out, but in other words, something that would actually change the character and they'd remember as a big event in their life, good or bad, Um, I will get a share in the consortium and the, the shares in the consortium are effectively stock shares. And at the end of the year you know, if we've made a Hollywood deal, especially, they can translate to a fair bit of money. And so, you know, like, oh, you know, Melinda asked to borrow my character, Captain Flint. Well, that's cool. She wants to send him to prison. And I uh, finally said, George was like, he's been the head of the Silver Helix for ages. Let somebody else get, get in the hot seat. I can, if we ever do a prison break story, at least I'll have him set up for that. Fine, and he's still in prison, you know. Since then, but hey, I
1: got a share for it.
2: Sounds good.
1: Um, I actually I think you would do a better job of this than me. Would you be willing to explain uh, the Wild Cards universe, like what the conceit is to our audience? Oh, sure. Okay. Uh,
0: the basic premise of Wild Cards, and you'd mentioned it started out with a role playing game. Uh, Steve Perrin had created Superworld, and then. Vic Milan had given a copy of Superworld to George R. R. Martin, and they had um, really gotten into it. And then George had decided, wow, we're spending too much time playing the game and not enough writing stories. Uh, You know, why don't we turn this into an anthology instead, and then we can um, actually, you know, make some money at this. And so George and Melinda came up with the central conceit of the wild cards universe and the the central conceit is there is a virus which was created by the tech and the jacquesians called this the enhancer vi- virus and it was supposed to enhance your psychic powers and the jacquesians were a bunch of psy lords who had been you know doing selective breedings over centuries so people could get you know cool mental superpowers and you know, it, it went on with generation after generation, but you know, that takes an awful while. So they said, let's make a retrovirus that we can rewrite something and unlock things in people's, you know, psyche and give them cool superpowers. Well, this was really nice in theory. In practice, what happened is that if you were infected by the virus nine times out of 10, it would kill you. And anywhere from, you know you just fall over dead to you turn into a 30 foot tall three-headed green pig and collapse at your own mass and you are also dead doesn't really matter um and then the nine times out of ten where you survive uh, the the one time when you survive you know the the ten percent who survive nine out of ten get deformed in some way or get a power that is not controlled. So, so you've got things like you are the thirty-foot-tall, three-headed green pig. Thank you for playing. You did not collapse <laughs> of your own mass, but your your life sucks. Um, or it can be just simply, you know, stupid, like your hair turns green and you get a pig nose. Not the end of the world, but you know, there goes your dating pro- possibilities. Then the very last one percent of p- people get a cool superpower. Um, and the cool superpowers, however, you, are usually termed in the, the world aces. Um, but aces also include deuces, and deuces are people who have really, really lame superpowers. Like one of my characters who's in Deuces Down, who's Swash, who got quickly called his nibs, his power is that he has fountain pen fingernails. Um he's a really really good calligrapher. He's pretty much, you know, he's tried to make it into an ace by being forgery boy, but really just a really talented forger could do that with a regular fountain pen. He's just got them installed in his fingernails. But, you know, that's not going to be, "Oh my god, fear me, I am fountain pen boy." Not a, not a big superpower.
1: i i'm deeply in love with that world you were saying earlier that you're actually uh writing uh source books for wild cards and is there is there one coming out something we can look for in the future
0: okay well the the source books for wild cards uh, first, there was the the GURPS adaptation, and uh, John John Joseph Miller did the first GURPS book, and then I did one called Aces Abroad, based on the Aces Abroad uh, novel, but I went completely, you know, off script for for that. Though roundabout, when George, we we had it reissued, uh, George brought in three of my characters from my game thing uh, game book and they became canon immigrants and got added back into the original plot line because i got to write a story with his character troll but in any case so there were a couple of groups adventures and that was back in uh, the late 80s early 90s and then uh, then we didn't have any gain adaptation for a while. and then mutants and masterminds picked it up and so there's been um a couple of wild card source books and one adventure books plus the scare sheets and you can get all of those at greenronin, uh, com, And so the, I believe that some of the uh, hardbacks are still around and available, and everything is still available in PDF. So you can play it right now if you want to.
1: Awesome. I am I'm writing I, this right down, because I have all the Mut- Mutant Mastermind so- original books behind me on the wall. So I'm an idiot not to have these already. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That that seemed like a silly question for me to ask you, Pete. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, so I, um, I, I did want to jump in just quickly, and I'm sorry, Pete. Did you want to ask uh, or tie off one last question there?
1: I'm I'm yammering. Please jump in. That's awesome, Carla. All right, it, it gives me a chance to look this up and buy a couple books.
2: <laughs> All right. Anyway, so uh, Kevin, um, what? I'm going to suppose that you game often. Uh, what what was your what was your sort of um, entry point, if you will?
0: Uh, my entry point was uh, you know AD and D first edition, you know Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, started off when I was you know like oh, I think 16. My friend Todd got me into it, and actually he thought since I. I was always the kid who told stories. He thought that I actually knew far much more than I did and was, was like, oh, we're going to be running a tournament here at the library. We need you a storyteller." It's Like, but I've never played the game before. And he went, oops. And so put me into his game. But I very quickly, you know, graduated to game master after that. It's like, I knew the way that, you know, plot lines and stories go. And I was writing a novel in high school. So, you know, it's a natural position if, if you're a writer.
2: Yeah, I could see that. Um, I I always I, I I've I've done switch hitting for for the same reason, but sometimes it's I just don't want to have all that on me. <laughs> what was there any favorite uh, TTRPG that um, that you've played?
0: Well, um, probably my my favorites are you know I did a you know a whole whole bunch of D and D. Um, played a fair bit of champions because there was, you know, champions in the eighties and when I was going to UC Santa Cruz. A lot of people playing that came up with a bunch of characters and, you know, I've recycled some of them for various stories. Um, did one with my character, the Magister. Uh, I did that as another one for Wendigo tales for, um, <clears throat> it, it's called the, the story called the tablets of destiny, but he was actually one of my old champions characters. Hmm. And then I got when I was in graduate school, uh, Stuart Wick and I were both writing for Talislanta at the time. And then he started up White Wolf uh, at the time. First, it was started as White Wolf magazine. I wrote some articles for him. And then, you know, I could have actually gotten in on the ground floor of Vampire, but I didn't want to move out to Georgia. Um, and but then later on, they did Mage and. It, I have, you know, researched everything on alchemy and knew tons of just basically hermetic magic and Western esotericism, plus also Eastern magic and everything. It was basically, I was getting an anthropology degree uh, specialized in folklore. So that was at the same time as creative writing. So mm-hmm. I knew how, knew all of that and I just sort of said, okay, you need me to do the second Um, edition of mage and i was hired in as the guy to basically take the nine spheres of magic for mage and completely revamp them and put in a lot more hermeticism because it was honestly mage was great from the technocracy and it didn't um however reflect most of the magical traditions and so you know we you know hashed out a number of things and i also new game, you know, game mechanic stuff. And I think we won the Origins Award for the best game that year. So must have done something right.
2: <laughs> well, I'll, anyway,
0: and so I played a lot of I'll, Mage I'll, and Changeling after that.
2: Oh, gotcha. Okay, cool. Uh, I, I that Changeling is the one that I sort of didn't uh, get into, uh, but it sounded really cool. Um, but at the same time, I'm y- – I'm seeing that, uh, well, was uh, House of Secrets, did you write that with uh, Jim Moore before Mage or or was that already when you were with White Wolf?
0: I was always already with White Wolf. I mean, uh, Jim was was in Georgia and I actually approached him for the Silver Nutmeg Golden Pear because I'd already written my first story for Wild Cards and I had approached uh, Stewart saying, would you like somebody to put together an anthology for your game? And he says, well, we're actually already doing it. But would you like to write a story with it? And then I looked at the writers and their roster, and I thought, Jim and I could probably work together pretty well. And I said, you know, we should probably do this as a little bit more of a mosaic, since all of the characters are having their story set in San Francisco here. It's really kind of odd with that with that few mages in a city. None of them knowing each other, and so that's where uh, Penny and Grimm ended up getting together. Because you've got you know the girl who steals things who needs a fence, plus the guy who's running a magic shop. So it works perfectly well. Yeah,
2: yeah, and, and if I, you just n- nudged a memory out, because the the uh, the entire anthology is based around like there's off in the distance there's an event which is another like a another big, big earthquake is probably building up, and they're I think that they're wondering if that's sort of like some sort of magical occurrence or something like that, if I'm remembering correctly, right?
0: yeah, um actually, what ha- happened there is that we were told that we needed to have characters with red eyes with one red eye, which was supposed to go with the red star and various other things, and it, later on, that plot line got completely dropped by the wayside because they'd gotten the television deal and the television deal decided to set things up in San Francisco. And so suddenly San Francisco became off limits, um, to any further, um, white wolf stuff because they were keeping it as the television playground.
2: Hmm.
0: So the, the mystery Hmm. of everybody with the red eye, well, I, I, I seeded the mystery and it never got solved. (laughs) that's
1: awesome <laughs>
2: <laughs> well wh- I, who was it? i was just uh, i was just taking like a class the other day i don't remember if it was uh uh janet yolen who said that always include like a a mystery that's not resolved i guess you you fulfilled that one
0: yeah, well, actually, the unresolved mystery is that uh, it, it's over a golden pair. I was going like, you know, it's like, well, I don't have that many characters, but I do have a red shirt who's going to die. So the pizza delivery boy who gets sacrificed by Jody, you know, comes by, delivers the pizza after Penny just, you know, has called in a fake pizza delivery, not realizing that it was a murder house. She's feeling very guilty about it, but she's also going, it's like, why the hell did he have a red eye? You know, it's like, but she's been seeing weird omens and everything all over the place. So she just sort of like going like, okay, file this down to investigate later. I don't know what the hell's going on, <laughs> but I'll figure it out eventually.
2: Awesome. So, um, and I do remember, because uh, I'd mentioned it in our episode with, uh, we covered House of Secrets, but uh, Charnas makes another appearance here, except it's the big guy, right?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, and I mean it's also we have the whole bit with the yeah charnus, I deal with him uh in the full penny dreadful novel, and that's that was fun to deal with. um, don't want to spoil things too much, and you can still get it over um at the onyx path website,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: he he was a fun fun character to put in
2: is Charnus based on an actual folkloric figure
0: um you know, I'm. I'm not certain. I'd have to double check to see if he's one of the, the named demons in the Lamegaton. But I just saw the way the card was. And then I that we were allowed to play a little bit. And then Jim Moore had uh, set things up with his character, Jody Blake. And he was the demon that she'd sold her soul to. It was like, oh, okay, cool. So I know pretty much what's going on here. And then had to have Penny... It wasn't quite run afoul of him, but it was more a case of, you know, tie up some of these loose ends. Right, right.
2: So, um, and then can you talk a little bit about your process in writing House of Secrets? Uh, I, I know that you, you. Pr- I don't know if you listened to the full episode, but we, we actually enjoyed that one quite a bit. Uh, did you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, especially the, I was just going to say, especially because it's such a, such an odd thing to have it based not on the actual uh, tabletop RPG, but on the card game based off of <laughs> the RPG.
0: Yeah. Well, it, r- what happened is that, you know, so Jim and I had gotten gotten the deal. And w- believe it or not, we had the crazy bit of they really, really needed the, the story really quick to tie in with the card game. And since Jim and I are pretty quick and we work well together, um, Stuart said, you know, he thought that we could write it faster together than any two authors separately. It's like, oh, that's not how it works. But, you know, honestly, I want you to get a novel contract. So I said, yes, yes, of course. And so over the, cr- the course of one December, uh, Jim and I, you know, ran up our telephone bills and we're going back and forth. And the way that we started ev- everything out is that, well, we've got, you know, all the vampire clans. And so you know, I said, you know, first, let's do a a peremptory challenge where what clans do we not want to see, you know, and I said, please, I do not want to deal with anything Nosferatu. Please don't pick Nosferatu for your protagonist, because I really can't stand using them. And Jim said, fine, done, Um, I'm picking Toreador as the don't pick them because I can't stand them. And so I went, okay, that's fine. And then we both said, you know, it's like, I want to do Tremere because I knew magic and Jim wanted to do Von And I thought, hmm, the Tremere versus the Von This actually is a interesting conflict because it's not one that you usually see. Um, You know, though, sometimes you do see it for like high level power struggles but it certainly worked really well with the mystery and i came up with the idea of the house of secrets because i lived in san jose and we have the winchester mystery house there so um i i used you know sarah winchester and then uh marie pleasant who was also she was listed as mammy pleasant back you know back in the day which you know i will admit if if I had twenty twenty hindsight for everything, I would have changed it to Marie Catherine Pleasant. But since what she you know, what she was publicly and you know I turned her into a vampire, I don't know if she would have kept up with the times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: No, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. And and we 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 do uh, have caveats for like you know obviously you know we, we can't possibly you know. W- see into the future and and see what the changes are going to be but uh but overall you know yeah i i agree with you if 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 i had the same situation i'd be like eh, well you yeah. know i would i might have changed it but i don't know
1: well and i, I mean uh, quite honestly the uh, given everything i think the world of darkness and your writing in particular is uh had some foresight like it, it's it's a lot more accepting of of trans issues than any other rpg i can name um and i don't know it, it just i i think it's it's really easy for us to sit here you know uh decades later and talk about how the world has changed so it, yeah i'm totally with you there
0: yeah i mean i i put you know trans characters into um you know in, into house of secrets and actually interesting story there uh spinning back to um to thieves world um one of my oldest friends is diana Paxson, Mm -hmm. who is one of the thieves world uh writers and her son um ian who also actually later wrote one of the more recent thieves world stories with her a friend of mine and I had him read an early draft of House of Secrets and the characters who were there there was a trans Malkavian who you know was just one of the characters in the cards and I had a you know a relationship set up with a couple of the characters there and he looked at and says oh oh you know yeah they're obviously an item and this is going on there and going oh um and you know, I was in suburban San Jose, raised up, and everything. And it was a case where I did not know everything about, you know, the trans community and every everybody else. But I'm a very, very good observer. So every little tick and things that I'd seen on the surface, I knew how to replicate. And then somebody who knew more about the community. Um, than I did was saying, oh, yeah, that's exactly what you, you've got going on with the characters there. And so with the second draft, I went in and a- emphasized it and spelled it out a bit more um, because it was basically what I would picked up through observation was, you know, you know, cu- subculture that, you know, I wasn't a part of but was observing correctly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great.
1: Yeah. That's, that's really cool, actually. I, um, I, I, I want to push in a different direction, if that's okay with everyone. Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about how you st- started writing and, and how you ended up in all the places you've ended up here. Um, are there authors that you regard as a particular influence on you? Or is there, are there writers that resonate and might have informed your writing in some way?
0: Well, actually, believe it or not, it was sort of a, a very ra- the the round bit about is that the biggest influence on my my writing uh, style wise was Joan Aiken, who I absolutely adored and read all of her books, and I really really liked. Um, and later on, I found after having you know read everything Joan Aiken, I found that Joan Aiken was actually a huge Jane Austen. Uh, fan and scholar. And that was who influenced her. So when in college, I suddenly was reading Jane Austen. I was going like, damn it, she used my favorite sentence pattern again. But then again, you know, (laughs) reading a lot like Jane Austen, there are certainly worse things to happen with your writing. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) That's hard to object to. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But I'd say that probably the biggest influence on, on me was probably, um, Jane Austen, by way of Joan Aiken.
1: That's a cool answer, actually. So, um, what what is? How do I put this? Uh, let's let's take somebody like me, who was into like the wildcard series, for example, and um, then you know got too involved in the job and looked around, and it's like twenty years later how do I plug into the new cycle of books? Where would you recommend I start?
0: Um, well, I think that one of the easiest things is um, just to go to the web stories on tor.com because there's a lot of stories there that you can go ahead and pick things up. And those are just meant to be standalone stories in the universe that aren't a big portion of the chronology. So you'll find a lot of a lot of good introductions there um and those are actually going to uh be collected into a volume called uh, full house at some point um and i d- don't know whether i sh- should have mentioned that but i think it's a case where you know every, everybody uh, know, knows about you know tor is collecting th- stories at certain points so that will be coming out at some point but you can you know read everything for free or just get it um you know on various web stores you know if you want to pay 99 cents to have a download of it now as for the the current chronology the original books are being reissued and they have extra stories added into them so even if you've you know had read them back in the day you haven't read them completely like um, I've got one in One-Eyed Jacks, which, yeah. You know, since today's election day, um, I'm rather proud of my story, The Tower of Gold and a- Amber, um, which has mostly gotten glowing reviews and one radioactive review because, well, I said something bad in it about the current president and, you know, that upset someone who decided to call <laughs> me a, 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 a second year community college student, which was just hell- English major, even better. In scare quotes, which I think is an ent- entertaining badge of honor to get, but.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, for whatever reason, I'm just imagining it like a Dr. Evil, English major.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and you know what? I- I've had my poetry when I was in poetry against the war get dissed by the Wall, Wall Street in- Opinion Journal. So it's like, ha, I've been, you know. Been been dissed by higher level conservatives than you, okay. Um, <laughs> and that's actually a, another sideline. Haven't got into is that I I'm a formal poet and I in a number of you know fairly fairly up there anthologies and you know <coughs> light light quarterly and and you know you'll you'll find my stuff around, which is sort of just an odd sidelight from. Uh, From gaming, but then again, the first stuff I was doing for Talis Lanta, I was putting poetry into the stories um, because I write poetry, and you know, if if you can do it, do it.
2: Yeah, makes sense.
1: Yeah. So, um, I I wouldn't call myself a a Kevin Andrew Murphy scholar, but um, over the past couple of weeks, I've I've read a few of your books and a few of your short stories. And one thing really pops out to me, and that is geography. Like you really seem to like your characters to go places and they're usually cityscapes and they're all over the world. So is that, do you, do you like to travel and you're fitting that in or do you just like, is it tied into your, your studies and your interests in different parts of the world? Like what's going on there?
0: Well, it's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, it's like I'm, you know, half first generationist. My mom was from Frankfurt, Germany. And so I'd gone back as a kid a number of times to, you know, visit. But, you know, un- up until when my mom passed away a few years ago, and then I went back and reconnected with my family and stuff. But I really hadn't been, you know, back to Europe as an adult. But I, you know, traveled through books. Plus I also had a very, very sharp memory. So I could remember it's like, okay, this is here, that's there. And I knew could find the right, um, travel logs, you know, and g- basically counterfeit the experience of the visit. Plus I had done a lot of traveling around the West coast, um, just for conventions and visiting family. So, you know, I, I, t- as a Californian born and raised, you know traveling the entire state is more impressive than it is if you're in a smaller state with less stuff stuff in it. Sure. Um, so yeah, so that that's that's part of it. But also um, stories are very much tied into place and if you know if you know how to do your research, you can sometimes counterfeit it well enough, that somebody who grew up there will suddenly fill in the gaps you know with their own experience you know if you put in the right touchstones of memory
2: hmm. yeah i I could see that um i mean i i i write a, a a bit myself and i've i don't know if you've done this but i have started uh, compiling like a tiny mental scrapbook of tiny little facts that I would not have expected in certain areas of the world. So you know, we went, we traveled to San Diego, and I had no I, I was not expecting to see parrots everywhere. So I, I'm just sort of holding that in the back of my brain, some t- for some day that I write a story set in San Diego.
1: Yeah, what I remember about San Diego is microbreweries and dogs everywhere, but I was mostly in Ocean Beach.
2: <laughs> well, well, yeah, we, we stayed in Ocean Beach too, but yeah, it was full of like – it was a weird war between the crows and the parrots.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wild. Yep. Um, Two different types of talking birds. Yeah, I, I love San Diego. My father lived there for years and I, I was down to visit it regularly. Interesting. Interesting. Which is kind of odd. It's like, I don't think I've set many stories there, but, you know, I I certainly do know San Diego.
2: Mm. Well, you know, it it might be one of those things that uh, it might pop up later. But, uh, yeah, sometimes uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes because a place is so well known, it sort of doesn't seem that important to me until it is.
1: What's crazy is the number of authors that I associate with that area because we've got like Barbara Hambly and uh, um oh, uh, oh I cannot lose his name Alan Dean Foster like there's a lot of writers from the 80s and 90s that are like I always walk into a coffee shop or a bar there and I start looking around and trying to remember the the pictures from book jackets you know <laughs> All right. Um I, I I've got a question and it's been bugging me, which is really unfortunate, Kevin, because it's silly. Um in House of Secrets, very early on, there is a Toreador named Carlo Rodriguez, which sort of <laughs> leaped out at us. And I was wondering, was he yours? Um not that I not that I remember.
0: I remember actually from the interview, but I think that he was just sort of a a minor character that Jim may have had. And it may have been something from the, from the game, you know, from the card game, you know, but it was just sort of like, okay, I think it that with the Toreador, I think something horrible happens to him. And I think that I had mentioned, you know, Jim really didn't like Toreadors. So, you know, well, if you want your your big bad venture to look Bucky, here's a toriador to beat up. <laughs>
1: oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Carla, it's just how it is.
2: <laughs> uh, yikes! Well, and, and the other ter- the, the other toriador that was there is the actual uh, like I think he's a seven seven life uh toriador in the card game called Masika. Uh, so you couldn't, uh, you might have not have been able to touch those guys.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but I think I think that was pretty much what was going on, especially if it if it took um, place in in Jim's character scenes, because actually everything from Ilsa was you know was written by me. So basically, all the Tremere section and then all the Ventrue were from Jim's Jim's point of view. That's how we went back and forth. Gotcha.
1: Well, I, I've, I've got to say, the House of Secrets was a, was a uh, genius. I mean, I, I love the idea of—I I don't even know what you call it—a a mystic, uh, persistent world TARDIS that 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 bloodline could go to. I'm still grinning about it. It's just such a great idea.
0: Yeah, it, it, it was a fun thing to come up with, but it was—you know—I'm not quite certain. What what was the inspiration for it? But it's a motif that I've seen before, and actually uh, I can give give you the um, the origin for it for it. Even though I, it's something I just found recently, I um, probably saw the sci-fi show that was out a few years ago. That was like a stealth pilot that went nowhere called The Lost Room, where there was basically the room that had oh. disappeared from a motel. But the lost room, um, is a short story by Fitz James O'Brien, who was a weird tales you know, science fiction writer before the Civil War, who was um pu- publishing in uh, some. In, actually, it was I think it was uh I think it was, it was Harper's Bazaar which was actually publishing weird science fiction stories back then. Anyway, so I will recommend the story, The Lost Room, with a caveat of like, well, the the whole bit about the room that goes missing and people can't find it anymore, uh, which was in this boarding house instead. Um, But it's it's a really, really good story, but it's also got a lot of pre-Civil War racism in it. Though interesting thing is that uh, Fitz James O'Brien ended up fighting for the North and then dying in the Civil War, so you know that's kind of an interesting thing. Is it, it his his writing is very very good, but it is so racist it would probably make it, Howard Phillips Lovecraft go, um, dude, maybe you should back it off a notch.
1: Uh, uh, fun story. Uh, the diamond lens is one of H.P. Lovecraft's favorite stories. or was right, and th- yep, th- that's another another fifth James O'Brien. Oh my gosh.
0: And oh, also <laughs> interesting is great. thing is that his story, <laughs> "The Wonder Worker," was the basis of, b- of "Babes in Toyland," though b- that crossed with the w- water baby, so they ended up then. Um, throwing everything except for demon possessed dolls under the bust but that's where you get the march of the wooden soldiers from hmm.
1: I did not
0: know any of those things
1: I've I've got a, a new author to dig up a little more on thank you
0: Yes <laughs> I'm looking this up right now as well <laughs> But but in cases that you know well, I think I came up with the um, the House of Secrets on my own, or sort of like uh, the Doom Patrol has Danny the Street, which does the same sort of thing of appearing and disappearing. Though that that's actually sentient. Um, but the device of the Lost Room, it's Fitz James O'Brien, and in the story of the same name. Hmm.
1: So. Um... We've 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 talked about uh, your work in wild cards. We've talked about one of your more recent short stories, The Anastasia's Egg in the uh, the World War 3 compilation. Um is there anything else you'd like to talk about in terms of uh, things our readers should go out and buy right now or in a few months when it's published?
0: Okay, well, for a couple of things, um, is that I'm working uh, with Sigil Media, where I'm doing uh, Savage Sign, where I'm the what one of the the head editors there for it, and that's the Savage Worlds role playing game sort of incubator lab, and that's a Kickstarter. The second one's just come out, third one's going to be coming out in the spring, and I've been you know editing the those and. Then I'm also uh, doing with Sigil and oz Ava- Media t- together. We've got the Book of Beasts, which is a gaming bestiary, which is the first case of, of a world we're creating for Avaaz, um, which is sort of the brown geek presence on the, w- the web and th- basically going with a lot of world folklore. So uh, you can find the first five monsters uh, for for October are all out. We've got the three different hags. There's the Cuca, which is the crocodile hag, boogeyman from Brazilian folklore. Uh, the Sucreant, which is this sad old lady who tears her skin off and then becomes a flaming fireball and goes out and eats people. And um, and then the Pesta, who is the pretty much the monster of the year because she's the either cro- plague maiden or crone um, from European folklore, who goes around with her rat and spreads the plague, which you know rather <laughs> topical this year.
1: Yeah, as as you do. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so, awesome. um, uh, guys, I think this might be a pretty b- good place to leave it. Uh, Carlo, do you have any follow up questions? Or I I
2: think I'm I'm all questioned out. So. Uh, unless Kevin has anything else to add or.
0: Okay. Um, well, so it's can, I can mention that, uh, be on the lookout uh, sometime in, you know, in mumble mumble future, because all of publishing is, is messed up right now. Uh, sure. there's going to be a wild cards graphic novel that I've done with, um, with John Joseph Miller and with our illustrator right now and, uh, John Sanchez. And it, it it it's going to be great. It's focused on my character Rosa Lotteria. Um and let's see for wild cards there's everything's available. Uh, my story in Mississippi Roll last year um, <clears throat> won the Daryl Award for the for the best novella. So that that was nice. That that's um Find the Lady and that's in Mississippi Roll and you can and of course I'm not in it but uh, Dealer's Choice came out with my character Hearn on the cover which I'm incredibly pleased by because it's like some of the most gorgeous artwork I've seen in Wild Cards and so pretty much all of Wild Cards is available and you'll find tons of my stories in there
1: Cool Well uh, Kevin this was a, a great interview we had a good time, thank you so much for showing up for this, we appreciate it
0: Yeah Thank you so much. Yep. Thanks again.